of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's now read together Lord's Day 6. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. He might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally had it fulfilled through his only son. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever stopped to consider the sacrificial system God commanded his people to follow in the Old Covenant? Can you imagine what it was like to go up to Jerusalem and to enter into the temple courts? Every morning and every evening, the required sacrifices were proffered. In between, different people could present their own sin offerings and guilt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Think about all the lambs and goats and bulls that were sacrificed. Imagine the knife being raised, the animal's throat being cut, and the blood that poured forth. Consider what it would have been like to see these animals put on the altar to smell the burning of animal flesh. Today, you would have animal rights people objecting and opposing such a sacrificial system. If you add up all the different offerings that the Israelites were commanded to bring, you'd realize there were thousands of sacrifices brought each year. There were literally rivers of blood that flowed forth from the altar. There were special channels to deal with this blood, which ran out of the temple and out of the city raises the question, why was all this bloodshed necessary? The Lord used Israel's sacrificial system to bring a clear message to his people. Each animal brought as a sacrifice, each drop of bloodshed spoke of our sin against God and of the separation caused by our sin. All the varied sacrifices pointed to the need for something or someone to make payment for our sin, to reconcile us to God. It pointed to our need for a true mediator who could take God's punishment and restore us to his favor. So far in a catechism, we've come to see our need and misery. By nature, we're sinful people. Our many and varied sins grieve God deeply. They're also offensive to his holy majesty. 
of ourselves, there is no way out from our desperate situation. The sacrifice of animals was also not a good solution. While it pointed to the need for forgiveness and the hope that forgiveness might be possible, it did not point out the way. Lord's Day 5 did that by making it clear that full payment must be made either by ourselves or through another. Since we cannot make that payment, it pointed to the need for a mediator who was a true and righteous man and at the same time, true God. This afternoon, this afternoon we're going to see who that mediator is, what he has done for us, and the comfort and joy this brings. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. It's by knowing Jesus Christ as our mediator that we can live in the joy of our faith. We'll consider who Christ is, how we know this, and what this means for us. Many Christians walk around with wrong ideas about themselves. Some think too highly of themselves. They think that they're pretty good because of the good things they've done in their lives. They think God should accept them and reward them because they're good people. Other Christians have the opposite problem. They don't think much of themselves. They've struggled with certain sins. They experience the consequences of sin in their lives. As a result, they see themselves as failures in life. They wonder, how could God ever accept someone like me? There's a problem with looking at ourselves in these ways. God doesn't love us because we're so successful. He doesn't hold back from loving us because we're such failures. The forgiveness of our sins is not dependent on whether we generally live godly lives, nor is it related to how terrible our sins are. Who we are is not determined by what we do. Any focus on us, whether positive or negative, takes away from our true identity in Christ. Beloved, if you think that generally you're a pretty good person, if pride and conceit live in your heart, you need to repent of that sin. In the letter to the Romans, Paul makes it clear that by nature, we're all lost in our sins. In Romans 3, he says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul writes this to convince us that we all need to look outside of ourselves for our salvation. For we can never earn God's grace by what we do. Same applies to those who look at themselves as failures, who doubt that God should ever show kindness to someone like me. If guilt, shame, doubt, or fear plague you, you too need to look away from yourselves. Ultimately, who you are is not determined by what you do. 
It's not determined by whether you're successful, attractive, outgoing, hardworking, kind, or the opposite of any of these characteristics. You too need to look outside of yourself for someone to deliver you from your sins and misery. That was the point of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Why did the Israelites have to offer so many sacrifices? A couple of stories from the Old Covenant help to explain this. Genesis 8 tells us about how Noah and his family were saved from the flood when the Lord destroyed mankind because of the wickedness of the earth. After he came out of the ark, Noah built an altar and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered them as burnt offerings to the Lord. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and he promised never to destroy the earth by means of a flood again. From this, God's people learned that offering sacrifices was a way of satisfying God's wrath and of obtaining his favor. There's a second event in Israel's history where a burnt offering was offered to the Lord. Genesis 22 records how the Lord required Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Because of his faith in God, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son. In God's grace, he stopped Abraham from offering his son, and God provided a ram in his place. From this, God's people learned that in the burnt offering, the sacrificial animal died in the place of man. Isaac did not die, because God provided an animal in his place. Thus, sacrifices could serve as a substitute to make atonement for man's sins. The location of the altar gives us a further hint about why sacrifices like the burnt offering were required. The altar was the first thing an Israelite encountered when he entered through the gateway into the courtyard of the tabernacle and later the temple. It was located between the gateway and the door to the tabernacle itself. It stood between an Israelite and God. The point is that the sacrifices offered on the altar enabled the worshiper to draw near to God. Sacrifices opened the way for restored communion between God and his people. Here the need for sacrifices comes into focus. It is our sins that separate us from God. Before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve lived with God in paradise. You never read about them offering sacrifices to God there. At that point in time, there was no need for blood to be shed. Yet with the fall into sin and the corruption of man, the perfect communion between God and man broke down. God and his grace provided his people a way to approach him. He allowed his people to present sacrifices and so to be restored in a living relationship with him. Yet all the sacrifices offered in the Old Covenant did not provide God's people with a fully restored relationship with God. The sacrifices foreshadowed the way in which a once-for-all payment for sins could be made. But the sacrifices themselves did not take away Israel's sins despite the fact that each morning and evening sacrifices were offered on behalf of all God's people, 
And so many more individual sacrifices were presented. In the end, these sacrifices accomplished nothing. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you know why lambs and goats and bulls could never pay for sins? It's because God is a just God. He is fair in all he says and does. It's mankind who sinned. And thus it's impossible for something other than a human being to pay for our sins. In specifying the type of person who could make payment for our sins, the Catechism says, he must be a true man. Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is sin should pay for sin. It's only one of us, a real human being, who could make atonement for our sins. The problem is that we're all affected by the fall into sin. By nature, we're all totally corrupt and inclined to all evil. No descendant of Adam, born in the normal way, could avoid the stain of sin. This disqualifies all of us from serving as a mediator between God and his people. Our catechism explains that our mediator must be a righteous man. Because he who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Sinful people need help in being restored to communion with God. They cannot open the way to God for themselves or for anyone else. There's one more thing that's needed for someone to serve as a mediator between our holy God and sinful mankind. We need to find someone to save us from God's wrath, from the everlasting punishment of body and soul that our sins deserve. A mere human being could never do this. The burden of God's wrath against sin is so great it would crumple anyone who tried to carry this load. Our catechism teaches that our mediator must be true God, so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath. It's only such a mediator who could restore us to righteousness and life. So we need a mediator who's both true God and a true and righteous man. That kind of mediator is not readily available. Yet God in his grace foreordained that he would send his son to serve in such a way. He came to make the payment we could not make. Christ came in our place to serve as a substitute for us. Now, beloved, there's something very instructive about the manner in which an Israelite brought a sin offering to the Lord. He would lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and then kill the sin offering. The laying on of hands symbolized the transfer of an Israelite's sins onto that lamb or goat. The priest would then take some of the blood of the offering and put it on the horns of the altar and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. 
The fat of the animal is offered as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's by this means that atonement or payment was made. The result was the person's sins were forgiven. Notice, beloved, the exchange that takes place. The lamb or goat offered as a sin offering took the person's sin and guilt on itself. Its blood was shed. It was offered to make payment for the person who had sinned. The result was that the person received forgiveness. He was restored to covenant fellowship with God. In the same way, in Christ, the great exchange takes place. He takes our sin and guilt upon himself. He pays the price for our wrongdoing. And in exchange, we receive his righteousness, his holiness. The result is we can appear before God as his redeemed and renewed children. That's what Paul is talking about in that text. Our catechism quotes from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. It tells us the identity of our mediator, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, he became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The catechism students often have a difficult time memorizing this answer. Because it uses big words they don't fully understand. You need to understand what Paul is talking about here is the great exchange that occurs between Christ and us. Christ takes on our sin and guilt. He gives back his wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is our wisdom. He is the one who redeems us from the foolishness of the world and from the blindness of our sinful hearts to turn us to the living God. Christ is our righteousness. He alone was perfectly obedient to God, keeping the law for us so he could make us share in his righteousness. Christ is our sanctification, our holiness. Instead of looking at us as sinners when we're in Christ, God sees not our sin, but the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. In him, we are a new creation. Christ is our redemption. He's bought us. He's paid the price, the ransom for our sins, and so freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. So Jesus Christ is the answer for our sins and misery. In Christ, we have a mediator who has fully satisfied God's wrath against our sins. In him, the great exchange takes place. Our sins and guilt are taken away. We receive Christ's righteousness and holiness. Can you understand, beloved, why it's so foolish for us to think that we're pretty good because of the good things we've done, that God should accept us or bless us for them? Can you understand how destructive it is to think that God couldn't accept me because I'm such a failure, such a horrible sinner? Who we are 
is not determined by what we do. Who we are, we are in Christ alone. This brings us to our second point, how we know this. We know that Christ is our mediator because the Bible tells us that he is. There are places where this is stated plainly. 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Hebrews 7.25 says that as our high priest Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Yet it's not only specific texts that tell us about how Jesus Christ came to serve as our mediator to redeem us from our sins. The gospel message is clear throughout Scripture. It was proclaimed to Adam and Eve in paradise when God told them that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that in them all the families of the earth would be blessed, for from their line the Messiah would come. Israel's laws, especially those relating to sacrifices and feast days, all foreshadowed the coming of the true mediator who would make a once-for-all payment for our sins. The message about what Christ has done for us is especially clear in the New Testament. Being a Christian is not just a matter of getting something. It's a matter of being someone. A Christian is not simply someone who gets forgiveness, who gets to go to heaven, who gets the Holy Spirit, who gets a new nature. Being a Christian is a matter of being a child of God, a member of Christ, a saint. And ultimately, it's God's word that assures us who we are. Romans 8, verses 14 and 15 assure us that we are children of God and that he is our father. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 says that we are the temple, the dwelling place of God, and that the spirit of God dwells in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 3 verse 20 teaches we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Colossians, 2, Colossians 3 verse 12 says, We are the elect of God, holy and beloved. 1 Thessalonians 5 5 says, We're children of the light and not of darkness. 1 Peter 2 9 and 10 says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. Again and again, the scriptures speak of all the great riches we have in Christ. And beloved, it's by reading and studying 
and meditating on the Scriptures, that we can really know who we are in Christ. For it's through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts. He uses the Bible to make us believe, to give us comfort and assurance. He assures us that our salvation rests not on ourselves and on what we do, but on Christ and on who we are in Him. Our reading from Romans 5 says that it is through Christ that we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Again, we see nothing is from man himself. It's all by Christ and through him. Through Christ, we have access. That means Christ leads us, he guides us to the Father. The word access could also be translated as admittance. It's through Christ we're admitted to the Father. He's the one who takes away everything that stands between God and us. He has restored us to peace with God. Jesus Christ is the one who accomplishes all this for us. Our salvation rests completely on his work. For it's by faith in Christ and his mighty deeds of salvation that we know ourselves to be secure in our relationship with God. This brings us to our final point, what this means for us. Beloved, if we truly know ourselves to be children of God, to be members of Christ, to be God's holy people, that'll have a major impact on how we live our lives. Since Christ has restored us to peace with God, we rejoice in his love and care. Satan's power over us has been limited by Christ's victory over him on the cross. He no longer has mastery over us. We may know ourselves to be safe and secure in the arms of our Savior, and so may live joyous lives in his service. In this life, we have comfort, the comfort of belonging with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our comfort does not come from our outward circumstances in life. It doesn't come from having a good job and making lots of money. Our comfort is not based on being healthy and having the ability to live without pain or limitations. It doesn't come from living well and enjoying the good things of life. True comfort does not come from these external things of life. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ and who we are in him. We will always be faced with trials and temptations in this life. Despite sharing in Christ's righteousness and holiness, we'll still fall into sin again and again. We'll continue to be faced with difficulties and problems in our daily lives. But our great comfort is we don't have to walk life's pathways on our own. We don't have to bear life's crosses 
by ourselves. For we're not on our own. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Him we find our comfort and our hope. He's the one who gives the strength and the courage we need to go forward in life. In Romans 5, Paul says that it is through Christ that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul does not use the common word the New Testament uses for rejoicing or joy. He uses a word that can also be translated to boast. What Paul is saying is that through Christ we may boast in hope of the glory of God. Paul is looking towards the future. He's saying that since we know who we are in Christ, we can look to the future with great confidence. Although this life may still be filled with many difficulties and trials, we look forward to the glorious inheritance God has in store for us. Our hope does not lie in this perishable life, but in the eternal peace we will have with God on new heavens and a new earth. And so, beloved, we see what the basis is for living our lives in the joy of our faith. It is that we know who we are in Christ. As Christians, we do not look to ourselves for our identity. It's not how good or how bad we are that determines who we are. It's not what we do or what we fail to do that determines whether or not God will accept us. Our life with God is not based on us. It's based on the mediating work of Jesus Christ. In order for us to live in the joy of our faith, we need to seek our identity in Christ. Only then will it be possible for us to be happy. Only then will we be at peace. Only then will we find joy in all the rich blessings that God bestows on us. Only then will we find comfort in times when we're faced with adversity in our lives. Only then will we feel ourselves secure in the arms of our Savior in all the circumstances of life. So we see, beloved, it is who we are in Christ that makes it possible for us to live in the joy of our faith. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing of our only comfort. We sing the words of hymn 64. <clears throat>